0: If God suddenly chose to save every single person that you prayed for and that you witnessed to this past week, who would he be saving? If he just took two categories of these are the people that you prayed would come to know Jesus and these are the people that you took the time to share a message of hope with. If he said every single one of those, write down their names, I'll save them right now. Who's coming into the kingdom because of the way that you are praying and because of the way you are speaking in representation of Christ. We come to the probably second to last message in this series in Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 4. And this is kind of the theme that we come to this morning, where beginning in verse 2, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. And I want you to notice, first of all, that there's a symmetry to this text There's kind of a mirror image here where in the first half, essentially, Paul is saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, talk to God on behalf of people. And then the second part, he says, talk to people on behalf of God. And he doesn't use this word here in this text, but he does use it in some of his other letters. And it's the word or it's the picture. It's the illustration of an ambassador. An ambassador is someone who goes as basically an exile to a foreign place representing some other authority. And so this person has to kind of take on a new culture without compromising the message, the authority that they were sent to represent. And there's a two-way communication that flows through an ambassador. He or she is first and foremost saying, I represent you know, the nation or the, the city-state, the kingdom that sent me. But at the same time, I am listening to and I am speaking on behalf of the nation where I now am, and I'm representing them back to the king or the president or the leaders of my nation. So Jesus, through Paul, here gives us this picture who will represent the needs of the lost before God? And who will represent the heart of God before the lost? And I've entitled the message this morning, The Missing Piece is You. Because that's what I hear Paul saying, is that in between people who need the Lord and the Lord himself, it's not that you are a mediator of grace, but you are called to be this missing piece that has this two-way dialogue just constantly flowing through your life where you're talking to God on behalf of people and you're talking to people on behalf of God. So that's kind of our two points this morning that we'll spend a few minutes in each of those. Number one, talk to God about people. And we notice four attributes of prayer here. He says it's tenacious, it's vigilant, it's grateful, and it's intercessory. Verse 2, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And I'm describing that with the word tenacious. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Are there things that you used to pray for that you no longer pray for? Like maybe you've given up? Or do you pray less now, just on the whole, in general, than at one point? previous point in your life. And why is that if that's the case? I think there there are two main reasons, though probably many others. Number one, I think we stop the continuation of vigilant, steadfast prayer because we think, I've got this. And it's kind of a tragic irony that in our lives, the more mature we get, the more competent we get maybe at our vocation or some other things that are important to our lives and just getting by in society, the more financial security we gain as we get older, all of these things push us towards self-reliance. And even though we're becoming in some sense more mature, in another sense we're becoming more and more introverted, more and more self-reliant, more and more like, I, I, I can take care of this. I think it was Tim Keller one time who said, all those things that you don't pray about in your life, it's because you think you can handle all of that stuff on your own. The stuff that you're praying about is stuff that you recognize, God, I can't handle this. And so we pray about certain things. We're dependent on God for certain things, but so much of it, we just feel like, I don't need the presence and power of God to you know get up in the morning and feed myself and get dressed and go about my work day and you know, perform it well now. Like, yeah, when COVID first hit and I had to make some major transitions, I was praying a lot, but now I kind of figured it out. With my kids, I used to pray a lot because I had no idea what I was doing with marriage and children. And now I just don't, don't pray as much because I kind of have it figured out. So that's one reason we stop continuing steadfastly in prayer is that we simply think more and more things in my life I've got under control. But a second reason is and maybe some of you feel more of this there there may be a cynicism or kind of a jaded spirit where you think what difference does it make? Anybody there you've been praying for something and praying and praying and praying? and you just don't see it making any difference one way or another that you've prayed. You're like, it doesn't seem to be changing my attitude. I haven't released this to God, and it's certainly not changing the circumstance for me or for someone that I care deeply about. So my first point here is that when Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, I want you to hear that a tenacious prayer life then would be a mark of true faith. It would be a mark of true dependence on God. It would be a mark of humility. It would be a mark of patience. Like, God, I will humble myself below you. I'll put myself beneath you. I'll trust you to work in your time. I'll be long-suffering, forbearing, patient, gentle. I'll trust. Going on here, verse 2, and the second attribute, he says, being watchful in it. And I use the word vigilant. That's what the word means, to be alert or vigilant. And I think, alert or vigilant over what? Well, I think he's probably talking about your own heart. I think he's talking to a church, mixed Jews and Gentiles and saying, you know, as you get discouraged by the affairs of the empire, let alone your own personal life, how do you continue on with hope? And he's like, you've got to use prayer as a form of counter-cultural resistance to guard your own heart. Going back to, if you just thumb back maybe one page in your Bible, going back to the beginning of chapter three, where he's talking about immorality, impurity, passion, desire, covetousness, um, all these things anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. How do you guard your heart from those kinds of attitudes and actions and reactions? It's in large part through prayer. Thinking specifically about 2020 now, you know, the worst year of most of your lives. Pandemic, economic crash, unemployment, race relations, not, not doing well. Some people arguing that this is not a real thing. Social unrest, urban rioting, polarizing, divisive politicians and politics. And as I listen to a church that we say, we are less connected as a church than ever before at any point in our lives. There's this sense of just being overwhelmed, of being anxious, of being frustrated, of being angry. And meanwhile, our minds are being more shaped by media and social media than they're being shaped by the heart of God. How in the midst of that do we stay vigilant? Do we guard our own hearts? And I think in large part what Paul is saying here is by taking everything back to God. Just having a, a habit of constantly coming back and just saying "Abba, Father," I got something else to talk about. Um, it, was, it was it was funny. I, I encourage you to just make this not not flippant because we're talking to the God of the universe, but we're also talking to our our Daddy, our Father, who loves us intimately. And a, a number of weeks ago. I was driving the boys to school. Marty usually takes them all the way across town and we pray on the way and we say, hey, what are, your, what are your prayer requests? What do you want us to remember? What do you want to thank God for this morning? And the boys kind of shared their different things. Well, let's pray for so-and-so in the church and this person, this person, this person. And uh, I'm just driving down and I'm, of course my eyes are open. And I just said, good morning, God. And they just busted up laughing in the backseat. And they're like, good morning, God. You're supposed to say like dear heavenly father or something and, and I, I just don't care. I don't think God cares. As you approach him, I, I think there's a more just colloquial, familiar, like an ongoing conversation that guards our hearts of like, good morning, God. Good afternoon, God. Good evening, Lord. Thank you that we can talk to you. By the way, if, for those of you who are married, Part of what guards your heart in that relationship and guards the intimacy of that relationship is just the ongoing conversation with that person. So you're listening to them, their needs, their wants, their desires, their opinions, their perspective. And you're, you're of course, giving them the same from, from your perspective. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I'm learning about God but you're guarding your heart from a vulnerability of like if someone else came along. See, if you had a bad marriage and, and, and your spouse just never listens to you, just tunes you out, never talks to you, never shares what's going on with her day or his day, you would probably be very vulnerable if someone came along and acted deeply interested in everything that you had to say. And you were the most clever person and the most intelligent and thoughtful. You're just the kindest person they've ever met. You would find yourself in a deeply vulnerable spot. But it's the same with God where if we're not in a pattern of being vigilant in prayer and taking everything back to him and listening to him and having this intimate, ongoing conversation, we're putting ourselves in a very vulnerable place where a year like 2020 and the personal pain that is brought to each of you in similar ways and in different ways hits you and possibly takes you down. Going on here, still verse two says, with thanksgiving, the third attribute of prayer is that it's grateful. It's just an opportunity to praise God. And and even when it seems like everything is going wrong in your life, you can still say, God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you have done. I thank you for what you promised to do. And even if I'm not seeing that come to fruition in my life today or for this last season that's been really hard, I have so much to thank you for, including the fact that, I get to talk to you like this. Tim Keller says, nobody wakes up the king in the middle of the night and asks for a glass of water except the king's child. And then he says, we have that kind of access. See, the the king with his power, with his authority would be a figure that you just fear and avoid. I, I saw this picture recently uh, I guess it was around a conversation of like, hey, when, when Biden is in the White House, what desk is he going to choose? And I was like, what do you mean what desk is he going to choose? And then I read this interesting article where it went through like, here are like the six or eight main desks that have been used historically by different presidents. And, and one of these pictures that I saw there was this very famous picture of John F. Kennedy was sitting at the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. And there's this little front door that opens underneath the president's feet, and there's John F. Kennedy Jr. as like a one-year-old, or maybe two, like playing at his daddy's feet in the Oval Office under the Resolute Desk. And I just think, what a beautiful picture of us and our father that he has all this authority, all this power. He can control and does control the affairs of nations. And yet, if we're grateful for nothing else, we can be grateful that he invites us basically just to to live and to play right there at his feet. A grateful heart is a safe heart. Because again, it's a way that we guard our hearts by going through life and saying, yes, there's so much to complain about. There's so much to be negative about. And I go there as well. It's easy to just think, okay, what's the next wrong thing that we can fix? And we have to dwell on that, you know, so we can make it right. But don't miss the humility of gratitude where we're saying, I didn't deserve this. And proud people aren't grateful because they think, yeah, God did that. Okay, well, big deal. I worked hard for that. But a humble person is a grateful person. So pray with gratitude. And then fourthly, and really where I think he's coming to here is verse three, where he says, at the same time. So while you're coming with these attitudes of just vigilant, I'm going to stay after prayer and I'm so grateful that I have this access and and I'm going to stay continual and steadfast in it. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word. And that fourth attitude or that fourth attribute of prayer is that it's intercessory. That we're not just praying for, I need this, and I need this, and I want this, and I want this, but it's literally, you know, praying what Jesus taught his followers to pray, which is pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth more laborers into his harvest, See, to Jesus, the real problem was not that there aren't people out there ready to be saved. He says the problem is there aren't enough laborers to go share the good news. Pray for God to raise up more ambassadors, more laborers, more farmers in the field. Do you pray for yourself and for others that God would providentially open doors of opportunity just to have a conversation, a way to share Jesus Do you pray for specific people? And I think it's interesting that Paul is imprisoned as he writes this letter. He says that here, yet his obsession is not getting out. He's just like, I just need you to pray for me that I got an open door here. Not an open door to get out of the prison, an open door to share Jesus and the hope and the freedom that I have in him. So my question before we go on to the next section is, what hinders you from praying like this? What tempts you or what distracts you? What else demands to have center stage of your life so maybe it doesn't even occur to you to be praying these kinds of intercessory prayers of just, God, I am going to be constantly hounding you and talking to you and and petitioning you on behalf of other people that I know need you. Going back to chapter 3, because I think he's still in the same idea. Remember chapter 3, verse 1? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your mind on things above. And now when he comes to chapter 4, it's not like he's changed the subject. He's just giving you two specific ways to set your heart and mind on things above. And what I hear him saying is prayer is an invitation for heaven to disrupt earth. Prayer is an invitation for eternity to disrupt the momentary and the transient. It's it's an opportunity for ultimate reality to disrupt the trivial and the purposeless drift of life without God. We are inviting God to do something eternally significant in the humdrum daily routine of our lives. That's what prayer is doing. So talk to God about people. But then, secondly, talk to people about God. And a few attributes of witness here that he shares. First of all, verse three pray for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And so we see the first thing that he's saying about talking to people about God is that our conversation is Christ centered. Jesus was the heart of Paul's witness. And if you had run into Paul back in the day, whether he was being abused or treated well, whether he was in a big city or a little tiny hamlet by a creek, his obsession was talking about Jesus. And by the way, he lived in a culture, he lived in a day that was worse than what we have it today. He could have been ranting on and on about politics and culture and the ills of society and the shortcomings of the church. But Seth, that's not where he centered his message. He was consumed with the good news of Jesus Christ. What are you known for talking about? We just pulled together your non-Christian friends and said, what, what is this person's speech? What are their patterns of talking? What is it centered on? As we've gone through a year like 2020, where there's plenty of stuff culturally to talk about, What would your friend say he or she goes back to this over and over and over again and centers the message on this? And what do you think Christians in our culture, if I were to lump us all together, what do you think Christians in our culture are best known for talking about? Is it Jesus? Is it the hope that we've found in him? Number two is found in verse three. On account of which I am in prison, he says... On account of what? On account of his witness to Jesus. So the second attribute of our witness is that it's costly. Paul would say elsewhere that he had been subjected to numerous beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, imprisonments, multiple ones of them. He's been falsely accused. He's been slandered everywhere he goes. He's been ridiculed. He's been run out of town over and over and over again. And I, I think today many of us are worried about being labeled and missing out on something fun. Most of us are not at risk of being literally physically beaten, let alone stoned, let alone imprisoned, because we simply said, hey, you seem discouraged. Can I share something that I'm finding hope in? We just don't want to be weird. We just don't want to be different. because it's not It's not cool to talk about the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus brings. I mean, honestly, if you are candid with yourself what at what has it ever cost you to follow the lord let alone to simply represent him to someone else what have you either voluntarily surrendered or had stripped away from you because you were simply trying to tell someone about jesus and i think how cautious we are about making sure we don't have any weird conversations and we don't make anyone else feel awkward I just got to thinking this week, do we really even know Jesus? Does does the American contemporary church really even know Jesus? And have we really experienced his salvation? Because the whole idea of the gospel is that salvation is free to us, not just because Jesus risked his life, but because he gave his life. You know, he was crucified. Salvation is free for us because salvation cost Jesus everything. And we're like, oh yes, I follow that Jesus. And yet the fact that our own lives don't take on this cruciform shape of sacrifice kind of betrays us. We accept his free gift that cost him everything, but we're not willing for it to cost us anything but I want you to think of someone specific, someone that you would love to see them know Jesus, experience freedom, just see the weight just roll off their heart and mind and soul and just be free, just be joyful, spend eternity with Jesus forever. What would you be willing to lose to see that person come to know Jesus? What would you be willing to pay Surrender to see that person come to know Jesus. Because in these New Testament times, when basically all of the apostles end up being martyred, by the way, it was just kind of an assumption, if we're gonna follow Jesus, it's gonna cost us something to share his good news. It's gonna look a certain way. Okay, number three, found in verse four, he says, that I may make it, that is the gospel, clear which is how I ought to speak. The third attribute of our witness is that it's clarifying. It's clarifying. A part of what we're trying to do as we interact with people who don't yet know Jesus is simply make it easier for them to understand and know Jesus and his basic message. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, what do people in Denver believe about Jesus? As you walk out there in the city, if you were to walk out these doors in the service and just greet the first person, what do you think that person believes about Jesus? And kind of a partner question with with that, what do they think it means to be a Christian? I think we have a lot of clarifying work to do. Because when I turn on the news, which is not very often and it hasn't been for years, but I'm talking about like a national news scene. There seems to be this message that you need to be like a right-wing evangelical supporter of a particular political party in order to be a Christian. That is not the case. I, I, I hear this tone on social media that you need to be an anti-masker, an anti-vaxxer to be a Christian. Neither of those things is true. This has nothing to do with your salvation. And I think we have for years sent the wrong message And nobody's working super hard to clarify the message of, no, 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 that's not what it means to be a Christian. You know how I know that? Because it's not in the Bible. There's nothing about vaccines in the Bible or wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And if your governor tells you to do it and it's not a big deal, just put it on and then maybe you can lower the bar for someone to get to Jesus and they're not tripping on the fact that you're full of yourself. And you think it's a constitutional freedom not to do something really simple. Is there anything that you've done or are doing that muddies the water where people are more confused about like, man, I thought I knew what Jesus said, but now I, these people are making a big deal about this. So maybe I got it wrong. And, and what would it look like to clarify the gospel message right now in the midst of all this mess of 2020 instead of to confuse the message? We have a great opportunity right now because people are asking so many questions. Number four, verse five, he says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. This means that our witness needs to be consistent with our lifestyle. He's saying, literally, the language here is walk in wisdom around people that are outside your faith. Think about what your life is saying to them, act thoughtfully. You know, be, be asking questions like, is this a hill worth dying on? Is this a conversation worth happening? Is this what I want people to associate with Jesus? Is this what I want people to think? Like, that's what it means to be a Christian. Is what I'm doing supporting or is it undermining what I tell people I believe? You know, for example, social media. Okay, and I went through a bunch of your accounts this week. It was a joy-filled couple hours. And I get it. We're excited to travel, go to the beach, recreate. We're excited about meals and drinks. We're mad about people that disagree over masks and racism and politics. And I just stopped on some of these accounts and just thought, where is Jesus? And maybe you're like, oh, I'm not a good writer. I don't know that I would do well with. Oh, okay. But, but. This is a representation of your life and what's really important to you. Where is Jesus? Where is hope? Where is love for people who are different? What is my manner of life saying about Jesus right now? Is it consistent with my lifestyle? That when I, when I speak, when you speak, people say, yeah, he really believes that. She really believes that because the, the, the message matches the activity that this person is invested in around the message. Number five, making the best use of the time. And I use the word urgent to describe this. He's not just talking about, you know, having a good calendar and a good schedule. Be a good scheduler. No, he's saying be urgent. It's that old question. If you knew, That you only had 30 days left to live. Listen, if you knew you only had 30 days left to live, what would you do differently than what you're planning to do with this week and next and next? Would your priorities change? Would the things that you treasure most suddenly shift because you're like, wow, I only have a month. You know, it's the 2004 Tim McGraw wonderful hit that you all know and love live like you are dying. But it is an interesting song that brings an interesting point that if you knew you were dying, there are probably things in all of our lives that we would radically, dramatically, immediately shift. And and Paul's saying, maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's an indication that we're not sharing Jesus with the attitude and the priority and the urgency that this wonderful message deserves. And by the way, I'm not trying to guilt trip you, okay? I I don't think any part of scripture says you're wasting your time unless you're witnessing 24-7, okay? God has put a lot of wonderful things, people, Uh, possessions, the the beauty of nature and food and drink and all these things. He's put these in your life. And a part of how we honor and glorify God is that we receive them with thanks and we enjoy them and we let other people around us know, isn't he good? And in the mix of that, we need rest. We need Sabbath. We need a a, a faithful vocation, okay? And some of you would not be faithful to your vocation if you just said, well, I'm not going to I'm not gonna take your blood pressure right now, but if if you died today, do you know if you'd spend it, you know, you you need to be faithful in your vocation because that honors God too. So I'm not trying to guilt trip you saying, do this all the time. I'm simply asking if, if there were a line graph that we stretched out here on the front of the stage. And on one side is this ambassador mindset of it is my ambition to talk to God about people and to talk to people about God. And on the opposite end is this American dream mindset that would say, that is not what my life is about. My life is about my reputation and more and more possessions, more and more relaxation, more and more comfort, more and more fun. I'm bringing this up because I don't think most of the American contemporary church would find itself way over here. I think we tend toward this side of the spectrum. We look like non-Christians. We prioritize the same things as non-Christians. We live for the same things as non-Christians. And Paul's just saying, stop and think. Are you living with an urgency that you or they could step out into eternity at any time? And they don't know, many of them, they don't know the hope of Jesus. That's the heart of what he's saying here. Recognize the time is short, the opportunities are few, so swallow your pride, shake off your fears, and be opportunistic with the gospel. Number six let your speech always be gracious. And I just use the word gracious to describe this. And I think he's talking about both the medium and the message must be grace. And I think there's a reference here to like a gentle, generous, kind kind of tone. But I think more so he's talking also about just that the grace of God would dominate our conversation. We know that our society is a meritocracy Everything's quid pro quo. You know, it's like you scratch my back and then I'll scratch yours. Or you hurt me and I will get you back. And it's, it's all meritocracy. And what a beautifully invasive message the grace of God is that says, I'm done with the meritocracy stuff. What did you earn? What do you deserve? Well, you don't deserve forgiveness, but I forgive you because Christ has forgiven me. God has given me undeserved favor and kindness. And so that is what I'm going to speak is undeserved favor and kindness. And, and, and the medium and the message matter. Both of them matter. And guess which one gets heard way more than the other? Between the medium and the message, which one gets heard more? Marshall McLuhan says the content or message of any particular medium has about as much importance as the stenciling on the casing of an atomic bomb. If you let that sink in, what he's saying is contemporary application. Has Trump done anything good? Like from a biblical standpoint, has he done anything good? Yeah, he's done some decent stuff. But is that what resonates with people? No, because the tone is always so angry, so argumentative, so arrogant, so proud, so judgmental and condemning and bombastic that that nobody sees the message. All they see is the medium. And Paul is encouraging us here that as we go with this message of hope and the the gentleness and the kindness and the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, Is our tone, are our attitudes espousing that? Are they married to that so that they're not standing in the way where people are like, I can't even hear what you're saying because I see how you're living. So may our tone and our message both carry the hope and the undeserved kindness of God. And then finally, number seven, verse six, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And I use the word winsome. Our witness to Christ should be winsome. You know, salty speech is not a reference to four-letter words, though I know some Christians who think that that's, that's the beginning and end of their contextualization, is just swearing all the time. But Paul's really talking about adding flavor to your speech. He's talking about being intentional to draw people in, to stir interest, to create a thirst for. And the thing with salt is that you don't want to use too little but you also don't want to use too much. You know, that that trick where you unscrew the lid on the salt at somebody else's table and you watch them go to salt their fries or something and then this big pile of salt comes out. So that's, that's not the right thing either. But he's saying knowing how to answer each person, which implies at least two things. Number one, if you're going to know how to answer people, then first and foremost, you're living in such a way that leads people to ask questions. Right? You're living in such a way that people say, I see your generous justice. I see your tone with those that disagree with you. I see that you're thinking about other people and not just yourself. I see humility. What's going on there? And then secondly, this presupposes that when you respond, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. He says you need to know how you ought to answer each person. And the answer is first and foremost about Jesus. But but someone who's struggling and hurting does not need you to come in like a wrecking ball and just destroy them with some kind of condemnation and like you're a rebel, and you're maybe what they need is encouragement and just. Just like, you know what, I I don't know either. I'm just going to sit with you in this pain and be there for you as Christ is faithfully with me. Okay, so it's getting to know Jesus so well that you can accurately represent different facets, different stories of the gospel to different people, knowing how to answer different ones. Remember what I said about prayer, that it is a way go back to chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 and say, I'm seeking things above, I'm setting my mind on things above, I'm inviting heaven to disrupt earth, well, the same is true now as we talk to people about God, is it's a way of saying, practically, I want heaven to invade earth. I want God to take over. I want God to be recognized. I want eternity and ultimately significant things to be heard over and over again, with my, uh, from my lips, and not just more triviality. And I just want to conclude this way: um, I am not talking about prayer and evangelism as like these are these are two programs or offshoots or you know subsets of the church. This is the church. This is the church. We have a missionary God who calls us to live on mission this is who we are honestly what else is life about that's marriage a stable job income possessions autonomy free time just endless choices that's where it's at then then you're on this side of the spectrum and you're you're I'm not saying you're not going to heaven or that you don't know Jesus, but I'm just saying like you're living like everyone else and you're putting a stamp of, see, I'm a Christian, where Jesus calls you to this different life and he says, this is who you are. You are a community of people on mission talking to God on behalf of people and talking to people on behalf of God. And, And my heart is that when we come to the conclusion of a message like this, we can do like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where the Lord is speaking and he's like, who will go for us? Who can I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me to pray intercessory prayers that bring the needs and the names of specific people to God, trusting you to do something with that. And send me to be a person who takes the message, the hope, the good news of Jesus back to people, and that I live it in front of them, and that I proclaim it in front of them, and I live relentlessly in a time-sensitive, opportunistic way, just saying, man, people need to hear about Jesus. And so as we sang earlier, Spirit, pour out and flood this city you hear the language there? I know Richard wasn't planning this on purpose because I didn't even share this phrase with him. But what we're doing is saying, eternity, heaven, God, in grace, in love, invade this place we live and do something that only you can do. That's what we're on mission for.